Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We're going to spend the majority of this evening in the book of Zechariah, but in order to do that, we're going to start in the book of Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment, and I'm going to tell you the premise that I am operating under tonight. We're going to start with Jesus' own words so that he can establish a principle that I think is obvious on its face, but we sometimes sort of miss it when we read this particular phrase out of Jesus' mouth. So I'm going to see if I can emphasize and clarify something that Jesus said, and then we'll see it implemented in Zechariah. There, have I made that interesting enough so far? Okay. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. These are verses that we all know well, we know that Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Far too often people read that in a more limited sense, and they think that Jesus said, don't think that I've come to annul the law. I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It is true that in Pauline theology, it is clear that our sins were imputed to Christ, and that he died under the penalty of the law, and therefore we're not going to receive the penalty. It's clear that Paul says that Jesus took the law, nailed it to his cross, took it out of the way. So it is true that Jesus did satisfy the righteous demands of the law. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here in verse 17. Because he doesn't just say the law he says the law and the prophets, and that phraseology, that Hebraism, is very well known throughout the New Testament and in first century Judaism. That's a way of referencing the entirety of the Old Testament. You have heard me a few times use the word Tanakh. Have you ever heard the word Tanakh? In the Hebrew, it's actually three what look like consonants to us, T, N, and K in English consonants. It stands for the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, the stuff that's accredited to Moses. And after that, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, the, the books of the Old Testament that prophesy. And then there's the Ketavim, which is the writings, which are the history books and the poetry and wisdom books and the Psalms. And so the whole of the Old Testament can be summarized in that word Tanakh. It's the three sections of the Old Testament. And so it was referred to, oftentimes in the New Testament, as the Law and the Prophets. And what that means is not just the Ten Commandments. He's not just talking about the 613 ordinances and rules that make up the law. He's talking about everything that makes up the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and everything that makes up the prophets, all the prophecy books. When he was on the Emmaus Road talking to his disciples, 
we read that he showed them from the scriptures everything concerning himself. And so we know that he is found in the texts of the Old Testament. And so he demonstrated to them that everything he had gone through, everything that had happened to him in his being turned over to the Gentiles and his being turned over to the leaders in Jerusalem, being scourged, being beaten, being pierced, being hung on a tree, dying three days, rising again. All of that was the satisfaction of prophecies about him that had to take place. And so when he says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, what he's saying is I'm not doing away with all of that scripture written about me. I'm fulfilling it. I'm satisfying it. I'm not doing away with it. Well, here's an example. The book of Genesis isn't at all about the law that doesn't come to Israel until Exodus. The book of Genesis contains things like the covenant with Abraham, the unconditional covenant with Abraham that's then passed on to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Okay, well, when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, none of it's done away with. It's being fulfilled. It's being satisfied. Well, he's even talking about things like the things in the Torah, like the Abrahamic covenant, or like the prophecies that are prophesied about him in the prophets when he says the law and the prophets. Because then after that, after saying, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish them. I'm not doing away with them. I came here to fulfill them. Verse 18 says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke, not one jot, not one tittle, shall pass away from the Torah, the teaching, the law, until it's all accomplished. Now, probably when Jesus used the word law there, the teaching, the Torah, he was referring to the same thing that he was in verse 17, the law and the prophets. He's referring to that Old Testament stuff, the scriptures, the Tanakh. But look at what he's saying. Not one part, not the smallest letter of it, not the smallest stroke of it is going to pass away even though heaven and earth pass away. None of it's going to pass away until every tiny little last bit of it is accomplished. Okay, so what's Jesus saying? He's saying everything that's prophesied in the Old Testament has to come true. All of it, which means every aspect of the earliest things, like the Abrahamic covenant that I mentioned, all has to come true. That means that the land has to be given to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in perpetuity. That has to happen. Everything you read prophetically about what Jesus was going to go through has to happen. Well, the reason that I'm emphasizing this at this moment, it's not only because Jesus said it, and I think it brings a great deal of clarity to our thinking, because there's a whole lot of prophesying about Israel and about the restoration of Israel and the regathering of the 12 tribes and the kingdom to come and David's greater son. All of that is in the prophets, which Jesus said, none of it disappears till it all gets fulfilled. It's all got to be accomplished. So then that alone from the words of Jesus is enough to undermine the idea that God is done with Israel 
or that the church is now somehow Israel or all of the other allegorical methods that people try to use to take the prophecies of the Old Testament and say that they're somehow satisfied in the New Testament church. It all has to actually physically genuinely come true when we get to Zechariah, the end of Zechariah, we're going to see several references directly to Jesus, direct prophecies from God through Zechariah about the first incarnation of Jesus and about the second incarnation of Jesus. And in the mix of all that, which Jesus quotes, there's all these promises to Israel. There's all these promises to Jerusalem. There's all these promises to Judah. So you can't quite say, well, the Jesus stuff, that's accurate. When Zechariah was talking about that, that's accurate. That has to happen. And in fact, did happen. And Jesus did come, and he was pierced through, and he was struck. The shepherd was struck. And even Jesus points it out. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes the time to say, this is the fulfillment of the scripture that the shepherd's going to be struck. He's quoting from Zechariah. But then Zechariah goes on to talk about all the things God is going to do for Israel and Jerusalem and Judah specifically. Well, then those things have to happen too. Or else Jesus was lying when he said he was going to fulfill everything in the law and the prophets. And that not one jot or one tittle can disappear until every part of it is accomplished. And we either believe Jesus when he said it or we don't. So with that as an introduction, with that as the premise that I'm going to work from this evening, turn to the book of Zechariah. We're going to start in chapter 12 but I'm going to read a little bit from chapter 11 first because I want you to see how Zechariah looks forward to the coming of Christ. Now remember that he's the last of the prophets, well, Malachi after him, but we're finishing up the book of Nehemiah. That's the end of Israel's history. That's the beginning of the intertestamental period. So these are things that are being said to Israel just before God is completely silent for 400 years and then the next thing that happens is Jesus comes onto the planet and starts fulfilling these things and says, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. All of everything that the scripture says so far, I'm going to take care of making sure it all gets fulfilled. In the middle of chapter 11, for instance, while Zechariah is sort of using visual aids he makes a couple of staffs, and he calls them favor and union, and then he breaks them so that the people will recognize that this is the very word of God, that God is going to break the staff of his favor to them. That's verse 10. And then it was cut into pieces to break my covenant, which I made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the very word of the Lord. And I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if it's not, never mind. So they weighed out my wages to me. They weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wage. Why is that interesting? Well, all the way back in the law, it says that the price of a slave who's been gored through by an ox, if you own an ox, any of you, anybody here own an ox? Okay, if you happen to have an ox, and he's got sharp horns, and he happens to run through somebody else's servant, the price of that servant is 30 shekels of silver. Not a high price. 
In fact, it's probably less than they would have paid for the ox. But if a man is gored through by an ox, the price of the man is 30 shekels, and so they give him 30 shekels of silver as his wages. But then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price at which I was valued by them. I think, by the way, that's Zechariah being sarcastic. Because as I love to point out, that is one of my more godly attributes. So the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Okay, so does that image, that picture just stop there? Well, no. Back in the law, we were told what the price was. In Zechariah, he says that that becomes his price, but that he takes the price and throws it to the potter. Well, then you go to the New Testament. Turn to the book of Matthew 27. Turn to Matthew 27. Because that idea of 30 pieces of silver should be very familiar to you. Because that's the wage that Judas agreed to in order to betray Christ. He said to the leaders in the temple, what are you going to give me? They bargained for 30 pieces of silver. That exact price. Do you think that is just coincidence? That they got together and just happened to come up with 30 pieces of silver? Not 29, not 31. Exactly 30 pieces of silver. Well, it's already been prophesied a couple of times. It's been written in the law. It's been prophesied by Zechariah. But if you're in Matthew 27, start right at verse 3. Well, we'll start at verse 1 so you have some sense of where this is. Now, when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus how to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him up to Pilate. Then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned and he felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver onto the sanctuary floor. He departed and he went away and he hanged himself. So the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury because they are the price of blood. They're such good guys. They're so concerned about doing the right religious thing. And they counseled together, and with the money, they bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Was that just a coincidence? Zechariah said that the price of a servant... God's servant, the price was 30 pieces of silver, and that that price, that magnificent price that they paid for him, was going to be ultimately thrown to the potter. Do you think that the chief priests and scribes at this point were attempting to satisfy scripture? Were they attempting to fulfill prophecy? Did they look at each other and say, well, you know what Zechariah said? He said the 30 pieces of silver go to the potter, so let's go buy a potter's field. You know what a potter's field is? It's where you throw the broken pieces of pottery, the stuff that didn't work out, 
the pots that cracked, the pots that broke. It's a field full of crackpots. It's us. <laughs> the price of Jesus' death purchased a field full of crackpots. Okay, that's prophesied all the way back in Zechariah. And then Jesus comes on the planet and fulfills it to the detail because not one jot, not one tittle, not one little detail is going to pass until all the parts of it are fulfilled. Do you see my premise, how it's working out here? Okay, so back to Zechariah. Starting in chapter 12. I'll fill in as many of the details as I can, but I'm going to try to read 12, 13, and 14 this evening just so you can see the connections not only to the stuff that Jesus actually did accomplish and fulfill, but all the other promises that are laying out there to Judah and Jerusalem that also have to be fulfilled. And so that you can see Zechariah's astounding accuracy on the stuff that actually has occurred. And by the way, the stuff that actually has occurred literally, genuinely occurred in time, in history, actually done. You don't have to allegorize it. You don't have to make up extra details for it. It just literally took place. So I assume that the rest of it is also going to take place exactly like it's written because we already have an example of how God fulfills these prophecies. With me so far? The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of a man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the people around. It's a cup of trembling. All the people of the earth are at some point going to tremble over Jerusalem. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. So not only against the city, but against the people. By the way, are the Jews a widely liked and enjoyed group of people on the planet right now? No. Do they have plenty of enemies in the Middle East right now? Do they have plenty of people who have said that they're going to bomb Jerusalem into the sea? Yeah, do they hate the city? They hate what the city represents because it's the place where God chose to place his name. But they also hate the people without a cause, the same way they hated Jesus. Well, Zacharias says that's what's going to happen. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Okay, what's the idea behind a really heavy stone that you can't lift? You can't move it. You can't get rid of it. Okay, so how long has Jerusalem been standing over there? Long time. And for how long have people been trying to get rid of it? Every generation, constantly trying to get rid of it. Is it still there? It is. Yeah, because it's a heavy rock you can't move. You can't get rid of Jerusalem. Plenty of people have tried, but you can't do it because God said, if you try to lift it, you'll be severely injured. Mm. Verse 4, in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah 
while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to defend Jerusalem. I'm going to defend Judah. And then the clans of Judah, the families of Judah, will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves. Okay, the sheaves is straw. Hey, what happens when you throw a flaming torch into hay? Burns, conflagration. He says, that's what I'm going to do with the clans of Judah. They're going to be so much trouble for the surrounding nations that attack them. They're going to fight so well. I'm going to defend them. I'm going to bring madness to the horses and the riders. I'm going to blind the horses. And Judah is going to be like fire among the sheaves. Verse 6. In that day... I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. In other words, I'm going to save Jerusalem, the capital. I'm going to save the house of David so they have a king. And I'm going to save the peoples of Judah, the clans of Judah, so that I establish them again as the kingdom I've always promised them. And in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. That means they're going to gain strength. And the house of David, the leaders, will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David... And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that's on the leaders and on the people, I will pour out on them the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. If you've been waiting for a baby and you finally have a firstborn child and that child dies, how much weeping is there? And he says, that's what's going to happen. When I pour out grace and supplication on Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to look on him. They're going to look on Christ. They're going to see him as their Messiah. And they're going to weep over their sin. They're going to weep over their rebellion National repentance is going to break out. But even more importantly, go over, if you would, to John 19.37. Let's go there first. John 19.37. Actually, we'll start at verse 36. Everybody there? John 19.36. Well, I'm going to go to 35. Okay, I'm going to go to 31. Genesis 1-1. It's an old joke, but 
The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced him and pierced his side with a spear And immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen, that's John, has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass. Everything we just read, Jesus being on the cross, Jesus not having his legs broken, Jesus dying before they broke the legs, and then Jesus being pierced through. In his side, blood and water coming out. These things came to pass so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Where do we start tonight? Every word, every jot and tittle has to be fulfilled. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. So every word of the scripture must be fulfilled. This particular one comes from Exodus 12, 46, which says, not a bone of him shall be broken. Then that happened. That's why Jesus died before the Roman soldiers came to break his legs. But then again, another scripture, verse 37, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12, 10. So here we are back in Zechariah 12. Can we now say that Zechariah 12, 10, which says, I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one weeps over, his, over their only son. Can we say now that Jesus actually did literally, genuinely come to the planet and was genuinely, literally pierced? And why was he pierced? John tells us to satisfy this prophecy right here, that they're going to have to look on the one they pierced. So they had to pierce him. Otherwise, they can't look on the one they've pierced. They pierced his hands. They pierced his feet. They pierced his side. They pierced his brow. He went through a whole succession of piercings, but it satisfied this prophecy. So then can we assume that the rest of the prophecy that God is going to pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication... So that they're going to recognize him, they're going to mourn over him as one mourns over their only son. Can we assume that that's also going to happen? Because the first part was literally, genuinely fulfilled. So the rest of it has to be. Somebody look up Revelation 1-7 for just a second. Because you're going to see that that idea of Jesus being pierced and Israel looking on him whom they have pierced is an idea that even carries on eschatologically because Zechariah placed it out into the future. We haven't seen it happen yet, but it's also picked up in Revelation 1-7. Would you read that for us? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So, Do you see how all these scriptures are being fulfilled? All these prophecies are being fulfilled exactly like Jesus said. Verse 11, and in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Remember, this is all prophetic and eschatological. Because then he says, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmim in the plain of Megiddo. 
Okay, well, you might not remember what that's about, but it was in that place, Hadad-Rimon, that the last great king, King Josiah, your namesake, yeah, you don't have to do that. Fist pump doesn't help. Um, King Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho II in Hadad-Rimon, and that was the end of Jerusalem's hope for restoration. The the last king that was trying to return them back to the ways of God is killed. And there was great weeping, great mourning over the death of Josiah. But where is that Hadad Rimen? It's in the plain of Megiddo. Does that mean anything to you? The plain of Megiddo is known to you as the Arm Megiddo. Armageddon. It is the Armageddon. As in Armageddon out of here. Never mind. I'm not really funny tonight, am I? I'm, I'm amusing myself occasionally, but I'm not actually genuinely funny. So there's going to be weeping and mourning in the plain of Megiddo. Okay, that takes you to the Armageddon. This is all eschatological now. By the way, is it worth asking, will that happen? Of course it's going to happen. Because literally, genuinely, the verse before it happened. And the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves. And then all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. It would be easy to read right past that and not understand why Zechariah picked those particular people. David was the great king of Israel. While David was king, he had a prophet, Nathan. And at that time, the Levites were the ones who were serving in the temple out of whom the priests came. And then the house of Levi were the Shimeites who followed in the sons of Levi keeping the care of the temple. So basically what Zechariah has said here is everybody in Jerusalem is going to mourn. That's how broad spread the mourning is going to be. From the house of the king to the house of the prophets to the house of the priests and finally down to all the families that remain. That's everybody. That takes us to chapter 13. In that day, remember a moment ago that God was going to pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication. Well, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a fountain for sin and for impurity. What does that tell you? God is going to cleanse them of their sin and of their impurity. And how is he going to do it? Well, we're going to find out in a moment that he's going to do it because he's sending Christ. I have people every once in a while, as I continue to make these distinctions between Israel and the church, I have people say to me, well, then are you saying there's two different ways of salvation? And I always have to write back and say, no, no, it's all through Christ. Christ is the center issue, but the church's ultimate plan and destiny in God's economy is different than national Israel's plan in the economy. 
And so you can keep those distinctions and still say that it's all going to be accomplished. Every word, every jot and tittle is going to be accomplished through Christ. But the way those things are accomplished are two different plans, not two different plans of salvation, two different plans for what God chooses to do with them because God can do whatever he wants with what's his. And he's telling us what he's going to do. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. Remember that one of the big problems in Jerusalem is the number of lying prophets. The number of prophets who have come and said, follow me, I know what I'm talking about. The false prophets that even Jesus warned about, that were even around in Jesus' day. Well, God says, I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to cut off the idols, and I'm going to cut off the prophets. In fact, I'm going to cut them off so completely, verse 3 says, that it will come about that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live. For you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. By the way, how important does God take that whole don't speak falsely about me? Very serious. That's a death sentence right there. He's real serious about say what I say about me. And we've got a whole book full of what God says, what God thinks. And we're not supposed to be making up new ideas, Gnostic revelations. Oh, God spoke to me and he told me to tell you. That's speaking falsely on behalf of God, and God withstands it at every turn, even to the point where it's going to become the responsibility of the parents to kill their child if their child prophesies falsely in the name of God. You will not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Well, then it's going to become so scary to be a prophet that this next little scenario I find sort of funny. Because if anybody has been a false prophet, and somebody sees them and recognizes them and says, hey, aren't you a prophet? They're going to start lying and saying, nope, farmer, that's what I do. I'm a farmer. I don't, not a prophet. No. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on the hairy robe in order to deceive. You might remember that Elijah wore camel's hair, John the Baptist camel's hair. That was sort of the dress of a true prophet, a genuine prophet. But they, being false prophets, would have put on the hairy outfit to convince people that they really were prophets, but they would prophesy falsely. But now they're going to be ashamed of the fact that they did that. Verse 5 says, and he will say, I'm not a prophet. No. I am a tiller of the ground. I'm a farmer. That's what I do, not a prophet. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. That's what really happened, not a prophet. And someone will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Now, that may be on his chest, that may be on his back, but it was very common for the prophets, especially the false prophets who worship the false gods, to beat themselves, to whip themselves, it's still going on in the Middle East on a fairly regular basis. It's still going on in some Catholicism to this day. 
people who will flagellate themselves, who will beat themselves as a sign of remorse. And that leaves scars. That leaves scarring on your body. And so people are going to say, well, what's this scarring on your body? You claim to just be a farmer. And yet you've got the marks of a false prophet on your body. What's that about? And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, "Uh, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That's what happened. I I was just with my friends, and they did this to me. But I didn't do it to myself, because that's what the false prophets would do before the foreign gods and the idols. Then in contrast, in verse 7, we read about the real shepherd, the true shepherd. This is part of why it's so important that when Jesus was on the planet, he kept referring to himself as a shepherd, the shepherd, the great shepherd, the true shepherd, because there's all these prophecies about the fact that God is going to send a genuine shepherd. So as he's cutting off the false shepherds, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man, the NASB says, my associate. Some of your translations will say, my friend. The the Hebrew word means someone who's close to me. So it's God saying, the one I send, the one that's close to me, there's going to be a sword against him. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man, my associate, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Go to Matthew for just a moment. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, right around verse 31 or so. We'll start at verse 30. Matthew 26, starting at verse 30. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is right after the Lord's Supper has been instituted. And then Jesus said to them, Because remember, not one jot, not one tittle. Everything has to be satisfied. Everything has to be fulfilled. Absolutely everything that is in the Old Testament that's prophesied about him has to be accomplished. So now before it's happening, before the soldiers even show up to take him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Why? For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd. And the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah. And because Zechariah's prophecy had to come true, he says, that's the reason you're all going to abandon me. Now, of course, after that, Peter says, no, even though everybody falls away, I'm never going to fall away. And he says to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Why did Peter deny his Lord three times? Because of what Zechariah said. Because everything that Zechariah said had to happen. The shepherd had to be struck, and then the sheep had to scatter. And just so that there's no question about the interpretation of that prophecy, Jesus took the time to say, this is that. You know that prophecy? This is happening now. I'm going to be struck. I'm the shepherd. You're going to scatter. And you're going to deny me tonight because this scripture has to be fulfilled. Because every jot, every tittle, Every fine detail has to be accomplished. Okay, back to Zechariah. Verse 8. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, 
but the third will be left in it. The idea behind that seems to be that two-thirds of Judah and Jerusalem are going to perish in the war that's going to happen when the nations of the earth come up against Jerusalem. But a third of it is going to be left. Verse 9, and I will bring the third part through the fire to refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. How often have we seen the prophets use that phrase? That at some point in the future, God is going to regather the 12 tribes. He's going to bring them back to the land of Jerusalem. And that phrase keeps showing up. I will be their God. They will be my people. And if God says this will happen, is there any option for it not to happen? No doubt. Okay, so when he says it, who is he talking about? Israel. He's talking about Israel. So is there any chance that Israel is not going to reach the point where grace and supplication is poured out on them, they recognize Jesus, who they are responsible for piercing, and then they're going to be taken through the fire to test them the same way that our faith is faith tried in the fire, and then they're going to call on the name of God, and he's going to answer them, and they are going to be his people, and the Lord is going to be their God. That's an absolute. That has to happen especially because of the number of things we've seen in Zechariah so far that did happen. So how do you say, well, that verse, that happens, but this verse, no. And it happened literally, genuinely in time. So this has to happen literally, genuinely in time. Chapter 14, we got to read. We're nearly done. Sort of, kind of. I appreciate that you believe me. Behold, a day is coming. Okay, here comes this day of the Lord language. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured and the houses plundered and the women ravaged and the half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Has that happened yet? No. Has Christ returned yet? Have his feet touched the Mount of Olives? Now, by the way, there's a really interesting little detail here that I don't want you to miss. This is the mountain that's just east of Jerusalem. When we read about the Spirit of God abandoning the temple leaving the temple, he went in stages, you might recall, that the Spirit of God left the temple and went to the mountain east of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and rested there for a little bit and then continued on away. This is sort of the exact opposite of that. Now it's the Spirit of God returning again as Christ comes to the Mount of Olives before he comes to Jerusalem. That's just an interesting little detail I just thought I'd throw out there. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. And you will flee by that valley of my mountains 
for the valley of the mountains will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones or all his holy angels with him. By the way, you see that language time and time again, that when Christ returns, he leads a great company. He leads angels. He leads his saints. He's coming back with the ten thousands of his saints, according to Jude. Well, that's the language of Zechariah as well, that when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom and fight for Judah, he doesn't come back alone. He comes back accompanied by a great army of angels. And it'll come about in that day that there will be no light and the luminaries will dwindle. We started to talk about this a little bit in men's group last night. This is that time that's described in Joel that Peter picks up on the day of Pentecost that you read about in the book of Revelation when the sun, moon, and stars go dark. Jesus described it and said that when the sun and the moon and the stars have all gone dark, sackcloth, ashes, that then the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the sky and everyone's going to see it the way he said it was. It's like the lightning that, that flashes from the east to the west. So it lights up the whole sky. So think about that for a minute. That's a little scary. Because when that happens, what we read from Jesus is that people then run. Well, what we read from Revelation is that people, when they see that, run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth. And they cry to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Because he's back. Okay, Zechariah is talking about the same thing here. It will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries or the lights in the sky will dwindle. For that is a unique day that is known to the Lord. It's neither day nor night. So he's not talking about a 24-hour day. He's talking about a time period, a day, a particular moment that only the Lord knows. But it will come about that at the evening time there will be light, and it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in the summer as well as the winter. In other words, that water is going to flow and flow and flow. It's going to come out of Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. It's going to connect the Dead Sea to Jerusalem and then connect to the Mediterranean. Why is the Dead Sea dead at this point? Because it's so overwhelmed with salt. Why is it overwhelmed with salt? It has no outlet. It has no, outlet. It has no flow. The water has nowhere to go. It just sits stagnant there. So what does God do? He's going to have living water, alive water, not dead water, flowing from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, which is going to give the Dead Sea an outlet, which is going to bring it to life. And that outlet is going to go all the way to the Mediterranean, which means that that entire region is going to become so fertile, so well watered, that it's going to become, again, the land of milk and honey and the land of plenteous fruit and food and cattle and riches again. And it's going to be that way summer or winter. It's a continuous thing. And the Lord will be the king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But... Jerusalem isn't going to become a plain. Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. 
from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Jerusalem is going to be just like Jerusalem has always been because it's a heavy rock that nobody can move. And then every place around them is going to become a plain. Everything else gets lowered. Jerusalem gets lifted up. Why? That's the place where God chose to place his name. That's the place from which Christ is going to rule and reign. It's going to be the highest point. And the people will live in it. And there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Has that happened? No. No. Does it have to happen? Yes. Absolutely, it has to happen. Because again, this section of Zechariah is so full of prophecies about Jesus that actually happened. That even Jesus himself quotes and says, this is this happening now. So we can't deny that Jesus accurately knew what the prophecy said and then interpreted the prophecy as having to do with himself. Because after all, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And that's what he's actively doing is fulfilling it. So then the whole rest of it has to also be fulfilled because it also has to do with Christ. It has to do with the shepherd coming back the same way that he came the first time and was struck and was pierced. He's coming back to be the king. He's coming back to establish Jerusalem. But then look at the end result of it. It's glorious. The people will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Why is there no more curse? The land was cursed. The weeds were cursed. The people were cursed. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. There's going to be no more curse because he's going to pour out grace and supplication on the people. That's what I wanted to know in the men's meeting. So now I got the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually, then you'll get your answer. Well, there you are. Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouths. Pretty bad. But when God fights for you, he knows how to fight. He knows how to destroy people. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. Well, yes, if there's people standing on their feet while they're rotting away and their eyes are rotting out of their sockets and their tongues are rotting out of their mouth, I'm going to say there's a great panic. Anybody that sees that is panicking. There's going to be a great panic from the Lord that will fall on them and they will seize one another's hands and the hand of another will be lifted against the hand of another. In other words, they're going to end up fighting each other. And Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in all those camps. So God's not just going to punish the people. He's going to punish everything they owned. But the gold and the silver and the good clothing will be collected. For whose good? For Jerusalem's good, for Judah's good. And then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which we were just talking about on Sunday. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth 
does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Notice who the king is. The king is the Lord of hosts. That's the king. Then there's going to be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, there will be no rain to fall on them. And it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. But in that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. In other words, everything in Jerusalem is now going to be separated, sanctified, holy to God. To understand this completely, and I don't have a whole lot of time to describe it, but within the holy place within the 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 tabernacle in the wilderness and then later in the temple there were certain objects that had been sanctified for God's own exclusive use they'd been sanctified by blood and by the sacrifice of of animals and so those things couldn't be used for any common use they could only be used for God's good they were sanctified they were holy they were set apart for God now Zechariah says all of Jerusalem even the bells on the reins of the horses walking down the street are going to be holy to the Lord. Across the board, everything. Now, within the tabernacle, there were certain pots and pans that were used in the sacrificing and for the Levites to eat. So there were holy pots and pans in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, Zechariah is going to say, every pot, every pan that's anywhere in Jerusalem is now holy. That means that they all, across the board, are living in the holiness of God. And that even their eating and even their riding of horses, everything they do is holiness to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. That means that you don't any longer have to go to the temple, to the tabernacle, to the high priest to have an intercessor to do the sacrificing for you. You're able to sacrifice. You're able to eat. You're able to celebrate. You're able to worship with just what you have around the house. Your, your utensils, your pots and your pans are all holy to the Lord. And when you bring your sacrifice to the Lord, you can do it with your own stuff because it's all holy. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. And that's the end of Zechariah. So good. I got it all out in one night. I hope if you come away with nothing else tonight, if you don't remember the details and really who can consume all those details, I hope what you come away with is the end of Zechariah who's prophesying during the time of Ezra going into Nehemiah just before the 400 years that, that God is silent during the intertestamental period, I hope you see that those prophecies actually came true in a very literal, genuine sense during Jesus' ministry and life on earth, but then there are also promises about the return of Christ and the eschatological end, including the end of Jerusalem and Judah and the restoration of Jerusalem and Judah and how God is going to bless them wildly. So the premise I've been working on all night is, Jesus said, every single detail has to be fulfilled. Every single part has to be fulfilled. Not just the law, but the law and the prophets. All has to be fulfilled. Every jot and tittle. 
And in the end of Zechariah, we get the chance to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and see some of that actually occur, actually be fulfilled. Fulfilled literally, genuinely, in time by actual events on planet Earth. And then scattered among those that we can see fulfilled are all these other promises we haven't seen yet. I contend based on what we have seen and what we do know is written, and Jesus saying every bit of it has to happen, I contend that every bit of it has to happen. And that means God is a long way from done with Jerusalem or Judah or Israel. That's right. And to say anything else is to be anti-biblical. Mm-hmm. You get it? Yes, You're with me? With you, sir. Can I get a ride home? <laughs> Never mind that. No. Yes, of course I have a car. I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of. I was kind of kidding. You have any questions about that? Do you like the end of Zechariah? Yes. Man, how valuable is that? No questions? We're all good? Yeah. Is it any truth to the fact that it's been said? Wait, you can't start with, is there any truth to the fact? Because if it's a fact, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I was an English major. I'm sorry. Okay. It's been said that the church receives the the heavenly blessings and Israel received their earthly blessings and we're going to be eternally separated that way. Is that? No. No. Uh, good question. Thousand years, millennium, kingdom of Israel, yes, there's separation church in Israel. But chapter 21, new heavens, new earth, new age, chapter 21 of Revelation. New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And the language of New Jerusalem is that she's like a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, that's very churchy language. But then it's also Jerusalem. So it's very Israel language. The gates on it have the name of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. But the foundation stones are the 12 apostles. So that's the ultimate blending of the church and Israel. I would say final outcome, except I think it's far, far from final. It's the beginning of eternity. So even though there's a momentary separation in God's two plans on planet Earth right now, ultimately everything wraps up into Christ, into New Jerusalem. And then we have access to the tree of life, and rivers of water. And, and for the first time, it will truly be the city of peace. Won't that be nice? I'm anxious for that day. I'm looking forward to that day. Because I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. I'm ready to go on to whatever's next. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Okay, now say it like you mean it. Goodbye. (laughs) Oh, and tonight Janine is in the Internet audience again, so say goodnight to Janine. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.